the field up. Number 156. This one's for the birds. The Field Knots Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you theonaturalists out there. I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. And together we are the, the Theonauts. The oh, gosh, that was terrible. <laughs> Oh man! Sometimes I just feel like doing that on purpose, like throwing it off. Did you throw that <laughs> off on purpose? <laughs> no, for whatever reason, uh-huh. this thing is like it's like always behind. The, the Theonites. Okay, together we are the, the Theonites. Kind of, you know, it's a new year. Yeah, it is. Have we not? No, not together. We have not theonauted since the beginning of the year. <laughs> Today's the twenty second. Yeah. Holy moly, that's all. Yeah, the last time. one we did together was the um, was it James or was it uh, the Magnificat? No way, I yeah. don't believe you. James five. I don't December, believe you. December twenty seventh. We're on the air. I don't believe you. December twenty seventh mm. was the last. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't believe you. I read James since then. Gosh. So I did the Passion translation of James. Oh my gosh! And I put Jesse at the end. Of, end of it. Doing his Jabberwocky thing, <laughs> Mandy. Mandy texts me and she's like, "Oh, I love the the Jabberwocky." <laughs> He's like, "Oh, Frabjous Day, Kalukale." That's great. Wow, I cannot believe it's been that long. So, how you been? Uh, uh, okay, I'm a little hoarse today, man. I don't know what the deal is. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I don't know. I've been fighting throat issues for a while now. This hmm. winter, but I haven't got the flu like everybody else. Everybody said, uh, yeah, seriously, they've closed down schools all over the place except for our ridiculous. school. Our school didn't get closed down, so I've had to go to work. Yeah, so I don't know yeah. how it is in your part of the country, but here in Texas, man, everybody's getting the flu. It's like a pandemic. Sick. It's terrible. That's it's ridiculous. Two people in my house have gotten it so far. Yeah. So, well, you stay on that side of the table. I'm good. <laughs> I'm not sick. I'm happy. Everything's wonderful. <laughs> It's a life. It's living. You're life. probably a, a carrier, though. I, you know what? I've never really, really had the flu. Really? Yeah. Never. Famous last words. I've never been in the hospital. No, my brother said one time he was like, I've never had poison ivy. Oh, and yeah. it was like it wasn't even like you know less than a year later, and he he got into it so bad he had to go to the hospital. Wow. <laughs> It was like, mm, should have knocked on wood on that one. That's craziness. <laughs> oh, my God. So, let's see. What have we been doing since the first of the year? Um, life, I guess. Working a lot. Yeah? Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much it. Well, it's been crazy around our church and everything. Yeah, it has and been. And we've got you know, Brian Neal, who's been on the show before. Uh, he broke his foot. Shattered, shattered his foot. Had to have a surgery. Gonna have to have another one. I know he's wearing this frame on the outside of his leg. It looks like a potato cage or tomato cage. Yeah, it's kind of like the Bonic Man. It's disgusting looking, but poor guy, you know, yeah. sitting there. I feel bad for him. 
So, yeah, Brian Neal messed up. And then, uh, <clears throat> let's see. What else? A bunch of people sick. Yeah. So, that's pretty much our life. <laughs> Just going and taking care of sick people. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's Your been... mother and father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Yep. They've been out of it. All right. So, Terrible. Absolutely but, horrible. Yeah, it's everywhere. But, you know, we're good. We're trekking along. Sorry it's been so long since we've done a Theonauts. Please forgive us. Sometimes we got to take a hiatus and live a little. <laughs> yeah, it's just been, but, you know, it's been real good busy, yeah, too. That's uh, right. The church has been doing well and sure and everything. And so we had a lot of fun at Christmas time. And Right. We did. I went to, uh, let's see, went to Kansas for New Year's. That was good. Yeah. Saw my family. And uh, we had a fun Christmas with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law from Minnesota. They came down, and so we enjoyed Christmas. It was fun watching Blakely actually open presents, kind of understanding what was going on for the first time. Yeah. Man, she is really, like, starting to get into it. Oh, my gosh. She's crazy, dude. Yeah, like, uh, she's... Now, like, whenever I come in the room or whatever, it's like, hi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Says hi and bye. And she learned happy. So she asks for happy to sing if you're happy and you know it. And then yeah. she'll start clapping her hands, <laughs> singing the song with you. So, I mean, she's just doing great. She's growing like weeds. And uh, God's blessed us greatly with her. So that's my life. It's been good. Cool, man. It's a good life. I have a good life. Yeah. Yeah, many duties. <laughs> Good thing. So you want to jump into the life of uh, another good man? Yeah, let's do that. All right. All right. So we decided to liven it up a little bit instead of, you know, just doing our sermons, which is kind of what we've been doing lately. Yeah. Uh, we, we decided to add a new series, and this is an ongoing one, and I don't know... If we'll it won't be a weekly series. Do it weekly. I doubt it'll yeah. be weekly, but you know we will bring up more people uh, every once in a while. But we decided to do great Christian men or theologians. Although I don't know if you'd call Saint Frank a theologian. Honestly, he wasn't. He didn't write any great marvelous works of theology. Right. He didn't give any doctrinal you know dissertations. He did write. I mean, he was. What's really cool about him is he was the first. Italian poet on record, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So yeah, he has yeah. that going for him. He did write some things, including uh, some really cool worship. But uh, other than that, I mean, he was just a cool dude, and he changed the world in a lot of ways uh, yeah. by what he did. So, yeah, I mean, it, his life was a testimony to, I mean, it was preaching in and of itself. Right. So, uh, and in many ways, you know, I was, I'm really kind of bummed because, uh, I mean, I, I know the rough story, sure, of Francis, but I haven't dived into it, dove into it the way you've, you've dove into it. <laughs> and, uh, which is, I'm kind of bummed that I have, I didn't catch up a lot because I really can feel like I relate to this guy. Oh, yeah. In a pretty big way. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, um, I mean, just the fact that, I mean, he's an outdoorsman. He's, I mean, he's all into this whole thing, and um, it's a lot of the stuff I've been struggling with, especially over the past year. Sure, is a lot of the same types of things that he struggled with. Sure, and it, you know this whole concept of of why we heap stuff on top of ourselves, and and you know um, a lot of that for me is coming from Haiti, right? And my experiences with the with people who, of faith 
who right. are poverty stricken. Right. And it's like that's what Francis sought to be. Exactly. Like he went to that. Like that it drew him to that. Yeah. And so uh yeah. I, I think this is a really cool story. I think it's a good one to start out with too, because it's it's an he's an early Fig- sure. figure. Well, yeah, and when you say, I mean, he's definitely early. He's in the Dark Ages, uh, 1200s, uh, during a crazy dark time in church history, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, if, if you look at church history and you see, there's a point where the church, the Roman Catholic Church, kind of goes off the rails in a lot of ways. And uh, he's born during this time, okay? And so there was a big... Um, a power struggle. The church was not only the church, but it was also the government, the power of the government on in Western civilization, right? After the collapse of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church became the power-dominant uh, government right. on earth. And so uh, they kind of lost their way in a lot of ways. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. The popes especially... Um, it became a, a money grab in a lot of ways, uh, and it became a very, very well. I mean, if you look at the beautification of um, Rome, and you look at the beautification of uh, the Vatican today, right, right. and see what happened there, I mean, it's absolutely extravagant. Everything's gold, right? Embroidered. It's it's gorgeous and looks wonderful. And so you have to ask yourself, how did it get that way? And um, and so the answer is well because they were the they were the kings. Yeah, the pope wasn't just the. It was a theocracy, right? The pope wasn't just a a, 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 um, a religious leader. He was also a king in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's in that backdrop that we we zoom into a small town in Assisi, and we meet um, a kid by the name of Giovanni di Pietro uh, di Bernardone, <laughs> which is a fancy. Word. Um, his dad called him uh, Francisco. Yeah. Um, we'd call him Frank today. Yeah. Right. But his <laughs> official name is Giovanni, and uh, he was born to a um, a very rich man. He was born to um, a uh, uh, a cloth merchant. Yeah. A silk dude. Right. And so a cloth. Yeah. A cloth merchant is was a person of of great esteem during that time. It was kind of like an empire, um, and this silk merchant uh, Pietro de Bernardone, uh, he had several children um, and was living the life, <laughs> and was kind of a famous guy in Assisi. In fact, he he held prominent positions, uh, was popular in the church as well. Um, was kind of outstanding in his church, just this great man. And Francisco lived um, the life of a rich man's son. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot that we know about him as a child other than he loved he, to sing. He was indulged by his parents. He loved to party. He was a party boy. And he loved to walk the streets of uh, Assisi, Showing his friends a good time, throwing his cash around, and living a lavish lifestyle. Okay, and so I, you know, think of. Uh, I like this one. This one description here says he was handsome, witty, gallant, and delighted in fine clothing. <laughs> that's right. So yes, that's that's exactly him. Um, also, it's it's interesting to note that he was very uh, um, judgmental. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there was a leper colony a couple miles outside of Assisi, and lepers were like the lowest of the low. And uh, and Francisco was known to, whenever he came e- anywhere close to that leper colony, uh, was known to hold his nose the entire time as he walked past. Right. Not just because of the stench. And because, walk all the way around the thing. Yes, and he'd, he'd like... <laughs> He'd widen his berth around the thing because he didn't want to be anywhere close to these dirty, dirty lepers. Um, he also um, is kind of he has early on he has a feeling of of wanting to be a charitable person, but he's not really that charitable. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost a feeling of guilt, uh, and so. It, at this time, there was a huge difference in class systems. Right. Um, most people were poor, uh, and then then you had a huge high class. High class, right? Right. The, and there was a big chasm in between the two. Yeah. And the s- aristocracy versus uh, everybody else. Right. And so he was he was high class, and he was uh, he's totally. Uh, <laughs> Different than the uh, the the other guys. So, um, all right. So around twelve oh two, he's a young man, twenty. I think he's twenty or close mm-hmm. to twenty. Um, as every young rich guy does, he has to join the army because there's a, a military expedition, um, and it's going against uh, per- Perugia. Perugia. That's mm-hmm. right. And uh, um, so Assisi is fighting against Perugia, and so he joins the military <laughs> expedition. And during that expedition, he's caught and he's taken prisoner. Yeah. And he's thrown into a um, a dungeon, and he lives there for a year, and he's um, he's held for ransom. Okay? Now, it's during this time that there's probably a great um, shift in Francisco's mind. He, he changes drastically. Mm-hmm. Well, he gets ill, right? Right, so he's sick during this time, but he's he's stuck there for a year, and uh, you know, prisons back then are not the same as prisons here, <laughs> and so he wasn't treated. He didn't get the plush treatment. No conjugal visits. Um, that's right. But during this during this illness and during this year of imprisonment, um, I think God uses that to stop him in his tracks of what he was becoming, which was going to be another silk merchant in a CC with his life being basically nothing. Uh, meaning nothing in in reality, and uh, God uses that to stop him and make him reconsider. So when he goes back to CC, he's really never the same. Um, mm. He stops going to parties. He stops hanging out with his friends. He stops living the lavish lifestyle um, that that his people are used to seeing him. His father's very concerned about him. His mother too. Uh, they they treat him kind of with kit gloves. They're like, what's what's going on with their son? His father's getting frustrated that Francisco is not showing any interest in the silk business. Yeah, uh, he started avoiding sports, right? And the feasts that he had yeah. with his with his friends, right? Uh, he was just constantly. In response, they would ask him laughingly whether he was thinking of marrying. Right. To which he would say. Yes, a fairer bride than any of you have ever seen. Right, which he was talking about mother pro- or lady lady poverty. Pro- poverty yeah. Right, what he called lady poverty. And he, he always gave uh, what's that called? 
onomatopoeia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he always gave, gave uh, human characteristics to everything. It was very oh. interesting. Brother, son. Oh, anapomorphic. Anapomorphic. That's yeah. what I, Why did I say onomatopoeia? Onomatopoeia is like pow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. What but that, that works too. Pow! Anamorphic. So <laughs> he would give human characteristics. A brother, son, sister, moon. I mean, that's the way he right, talked later right. on. But yeah, anyways, <clears throat> Lady Poverty is a good example of that. And so he was thinking of that. Um, he's He has this great inner turmoil to the point where he thinks, you know what? Maybe I just need to become a holy warrior. Because at this time, one of the biggest things that you could do was to become a crusader. To become a right? crusader. Yeah. That's right. So the crusades were going on, and they were in full force. There had been two already. There was a third one about to hit. And, uh, and if you were a Catholic, one of your high esteem was to become a knight in the crusades, yes. right? Uh, it was that whole medieval lord and lady and the knight and chivalry was king. King, king Arthur. And, That's right. Yeah. And so if you were, you know... Uh, going to be a great Christian, then they identified that with being a great knight and slaughtering your thousands of, uh, you know, more whore, you know, hordes. And so uh, they, Moorish hordes. And so they, they, you know, Francisco decided, okay, I'll, I'll become a, I'll become a crusader. So he leaves uh, for Apulia to enlist in the army of Walter the Third. Mm-hmm. Um, and while he's, on his way, he feels like he gets a vision from God. And this won't be the first time, but this is the first vision that Frank gets. And he feels like God specifically says, Francisco, you're not meant to be a warrior. That's what not, not what you're called to do. And so he stops, and he never enlists, and he turns back, and he goes to Assisi. Now, his parents, his father especially, is offended by this. Yeah, Um, because now he's subscribed as a coward. Right, exactly. And so he's not going to be a cloth merchant. He's not very good at, or he's good at it, but he doesn't have any desire to sell cloth. He's abandoned his live carefree lifestyle. He's you know he's 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 a different man, and and now he's going to be a coward. How dare he? Mm. So while he's heading back, he stops at a church. and it's very interesting. Actually, he goes on a pilgrimage after this. He goes to St. Peter's Basilica. And while he's on this pilgrimage, he uh, he hides out with beggars and he begs, which is really odd. Like he's, mm-hmm. it's almost like he's testing the waters at this point. Yeah. And he, like, would, he would hang out in lonely places. Right. Looking for enlightenment. Exactly. So he was really, he, this was during his search. Mm-hmm. And so uh, usually another thing that you did if you were a very holy man. So he's really looking inward and spiritually searching. Another thing that you did was you went to, uh, you, you made a pilgrimage to either Jerusalem, right. Which was hotly contested at this point and owned by, uh, Saladin, right? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And owned by the Muslims. So hardly anybody got the, to do that. Yeah. Or the Turks, the Turks. That's right. Or you went to, uh, Rome. And so he went on a pilgrimage and while he's there, he tests the waters and decides he's going to, beg at St. Peter's Basilica. And so he kind of disguises himself. Now, why would he need to beg? He's not, you know, he's not poor. Right. He's wanting to see what it feels like. What it feels like. Yeah. He's trying to identify with the poor because he's taking the scriptures literally, Mm -hmm. identifying with the poor. And that's what he's thinking. I, I need to identify with the poor. And so he begs and then... On his way back, he stops off at a messed up uh, county 
chapel, country chapel, like he has been um, doing before, which is going out to to desolate places. And this chapel is a, almost a ruin. It's right outside of Assisi, and the name of it is San uh, Damiano. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes in there and he sees a crucifix. Now, this is the funky-looking crucifix. If you look it up, it's pretty interesting-looking. Anyways, so he's there, and he's praying, and he crucifix sees... Crucifix talks to him. Yeah, he sees Jesus turn, <laughs> over, turn around and talk to him on this crucifix. And he says, Francisco, my house lies in ruins. Okay? And he basically says, fix my house. Right? Right. And so Francisco takes that extremely literally. You will notice something about Francisco. It is one thing. He is literal. And everything he did, he was extremely literal. And we'll see this played out in his life. So what does he do? He goes and gets water in a bucket and he starts scrubbing the floor. <laughs> right? Because he's like, oh, the house is in yeah, ruins. Jesus needs me to fix, mop the floor. Fix this. Yeah. yeah, fix this church. So he starts fixing the church. Now, his family thinks by this point, this dude has gone out of his mind. <laughs> right? He stopped caring about everything else except for this broken down chapel in the middle of the woods outside of CC. That's where he's spending all of no, his time. No military aspirations. Aspirations. aspirations at all. He's he's gonna make nothing of himself. Yeah. Instead, all he's doing is fixing up this decrepit old chapel. What's he doing? And so day in, day out, that's what he's doing. Going out to the chapel, fixing it up, making it nice, doing all this stuff. <laughs> Finally, uh, it gets to the point where he doesn't have any money and he can't <laughs> ask his parents. Right. So he takes a bolt of silk and he sells it from his dad. From his dad. Yeah, he yeah. steals it from his dad's shop. <laughs> <laughs> and he sells it, gets the money, and goes and buys lumber to fix up the the church, right? <laughs> uh, if I remember, and the right. priest refused to accept it, right, because he stole it, right? Exactly. So he's kind of <laughs> up a creek. Well, meanwhile, his dad finds out he stole this bolt of silk, and yeah. this is this is the last straw for this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, so he goes and he hides in a cave. Right. So, yeah, Francisco, scared, he goes and hides in a clay cave. Um, and so his father finds him, right, um, because he can't hide out forever. His father finds him. He grabs him by the scruff of the neck, and he drags him in front of, he drags him to, like, basically the town center, mm-hmm. uh, to the city council to the town center and he throws him at their feet and basically he's like starts accusing him right and yeah. making all these accusations you are uh you're no son of mine you've you've absolutely betrayed my trust you've stolen money you've done all this stuff and francis is just like i was just trying to do what god's told me to do and at this point francis takes this bold stand and what he does is he in front of the public, like there's a there is a gathering. Yeah. Okay, it'd be like in our well, small town in Savoy. Well, yeah, he's what he's trying to do is 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 force his son to forego his inheritance, right, and make res- restitution, right. Yeah. So so the idea is uh, he's abandoning basically. Yeah. Honestly, and he's doing it publicly, so everybody knows this madman is not going to be my son anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Francisco makes a public stand, and he strips down, naked, literally, takes 
all of his clothes off. Yeah. You know, I started to start the show with uh, Theo Nudis, but I figured that wouldn't go over Theo. Glassville's <laughs> <laughs> Theo Naturalist. That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, um, oh my gosh, it's so funny. Okay, so he strips himself down. Yeah, he strips, he strips himself down, and uh, he uh, he basically says. My only father is Father God. Mm. You are not my father anymore. I renounced this life, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go for something different. So the uh, the priest who's standing beside him throws over his cloak over him, right? Um, and a lot of people say that signifies that the church would take care of him from then on. I think it was just because be. there were people there, and he didn't. And he was naked. And he was naked. <laughs> So the priest kind of took him. So for the next couple months, uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. He just becomes a beggar yeah. in Assisi. Everybody knows him, and everybody knows him as who he is. <laughs> and honestly, I think at any point he can go back to his father and mother, be repentant, mm-hmm. and they would take him in. But he chooses not to. Right. Um, and so... Everybody just looks at him like he's this crazy man. And word spreads far and wide in Italy. There's this dude in Assisi who had everything. And, man, he had everything on on a silver chain. And he gave it up for this life of a beggar. Mm. Like, he lives outside and he sleeps in the slums. And not only that, but, you know, he's, he's like, begging for money and... He he's he's not going back to his father. What's what's going on with this guy? And what happened was God really got a hold of him, and and uh, and he felt like he was being called to three big things. Um, he felt like he was being called to first and foremost. Um, he he felt like uh, he, he was he was being called to a life of poverty. Okay, um, so he felt like he needed to identify with Jesus. In Jesus's poverty, mm-hmm. as he read the gospels, or not read, but as he knew the gospels, he knew that Jesus was a, a, a homeless man. Yeah, he had no place when he was like you to know, lay his head. Right. Yeah. No one when, when people would say, "Hey, Master, I'll follow you wherever," and Jesus's response was, "Foxes have holes. Yeah, right. even animals have places to live, and I don't have a place to lay my head." Right, and so he believed that to identify with Jesus, he needed to take a vow of poverty, mm-hmm. and so what he did was he literally lived day by day begging, and so he would get just enough food to live off of, and the rest he would beg would be money or <clears throat> things that he could go and restore. That church. That church. Yeah. And like so he was even begging for stones. Right. That they would exactly use for the, to rebuild the church. Right. And day to day, he would restore that restore that church. Um, and he lived in the hills uh, behind Assisi. And he did all that work by himself, too. He carried all the stones that he would receive right. to the church and placed them. Right, and so he was, he was really focused on that that whole restoration thing, and he finally did. He restored the church, okay. Um, but this time, everybody's like, "This guy's nuts." Uh, he worked for a time in a monastery for a while um, during this time, but he was just a, a plain beggar. He lived outside. He didn't, you know, he just begged, and so. Uh, Besides that, he and began to like help the same lepers that he was right. So the other thing he took, he spurning. T- yeah, he took a vow of chastity. He believed that 
Jesus never married, and so he shouldn't marry. He took a vow of chastity, and he took a vow of obedience. And this was a big one for him, because this guy absolutely could not beforehand identify with the least of these. Right. It was hard for him to identify with the least of these, because he had every need met, and the least of the least at this time were um, the lepers in mm-hmm. those communities. Yeah. And so one day, he makes up his mind, if I'm going to obey and follow Christ completely, it means that I have to go and I have to love the least of these. So he ends up going into the leper colony, the place where he was holding his nose before, (laughs) going into that leper colony and touching those people. Now, um, to them, and you've talked about this with Haiti, Mm -hmm. but to those people... A touch was foreign. Right. They were considered completely unclean because leprosy was a disease that nobody knew how it was transferred other than they knew it was highly contagious. Right. And it was dangerous. In fact, lepers would have clackers um, at this time to where if you got within 100, 200 feet of them, they would clack those things pretty hard to let you know, do not come any near. Yeah, don't get any closer. I am a leper and you will catch it. And this is something that had been going on for a thousand years. I mean, right. or, or longer. During like, Jesus' yeah, time. During Jesus' time, it was completely, it was ceremoniously yeah. unclean. It was religiously unclean to touch right. them, regardless of whether you caught the disease. Right. It, you couldn't touch them anyway. Right. And so for a rabbi like Jesus, like there are, there are passages in the scriptures where he, it says specifically, then Jesus, having compassion on him, touched him. Like it goes right out and tells you specifically... Jesus made a point of touching them that was an implication of getting past the uncleanness. Jesus didn't care. Like, he was making them clean. And uh, so it's the same thing here. Now you've got 1,200 years later, right? and you have nothing's really changed when it comes to lepers, except for there's probably more fear of the disease than a religious, you know, ceremonial problem with touching them. Right. But still... So, yeah, and, and that was a big deal. And, and so these people, as a result, and this had not changed. This idea had not changed, the, the idea of ceremonial uncleanliness. In fact, mm-hmm. they were considered being punished by God. Right. And so um, Francisco goes and touches them for the first time ever, washes their wounds, mm. cleans their, boils their rags for them, cleans yeah. their rags, and spends time ministering to these these lepers without fear of getting contamination. And so can you imagine being a leper and being maybe a leper from 12 years old and now being 23 and your face is rotting off, right? Your nose is gone and your fingers are gone and your life is literally living off of... No one's ever touched you. Right, living off of whatever people give you and then nobody has ever touched you. Because of their fear of touching you, I can't even imagine what the social Mm. needs there are not not just the the physical um, the physical needs, but the the social needs. Right, because everyone wants to be loved and everybody wants to be cared for and wants hunger for wants to know that that somebody cares. Right, and you know it reminds me like when we went to Laguanov for the first time. Right, we were out in the middle of nowhere. Right, and we didn't have any medical teams with us or anything like that right. and everyone we went on these prayer walks and everyone we would encounter was sick in some way or the other and and people would say hey there's 
Americans here, missionaries, hmm. and they're here to pray for us. And so they would like, yes, come to my house where my wife is sick. Yeah. And so I remember walking into one house. It was this little dirt, uh, <laughs> mud house. And the woman in there was so sick, she couldn't get out of bed and uh, and all this sort of thing. And I remember one of the team members looked at me and was like, Dude, should we go in there? We don't know what she has. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and well, it's like, well, that's why we're here. And so Yeah. And, and so yeah, you go we went in and we laid hands on her, we prayed for her, and that sort of thing. God's like, okay, God brought us here to this country. He, I'm not I'm, I trust him. Yeah. Right? And so it's the same thing. That meant so much. Whether or not the healing actually occurred, the the physical healing, there was a there was a mental healing there. Sure. And I'm sure that that St. Francis is starting to, or Francisco at this point is starting to see um, that in people. Right. He's starting to see what it means to love people. Yeah. To care for people. And so he lives this way for quite a while. In fact, he, he after he restores uh, the the first church, he goes around and starts restoring other chapels around, and that's his life. Mm-hmm. He lives like that. Uh, he makes a little hut for himself. Uh, he lives like that. He goes to the least of these. He hangs out with beggars and prostitutes and everybody else, and he begs for the day. If he gets food, fine. If he doesn't, whatever. But his main focus is restoring these churches. And so <laughs> he lives this life of simplicity, poverty, and chastity, and obedience. And so um, one morning, uh, a lot of people say February 1208, whatever. Um, but one morning he's on his way um, – to his hut when he had a thought of um getting followers <laughs> and so yeah. uh his Once first again footprints of Jesus right like he's thinking okay Jesus had Jesus gathered these 12 guys to follow him right so and so that's exactly what he's thinking um and and he makes a a rule uh they're they're called to um they're, they base it off of the commissioning of the Twelve in the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, so these people are supposed to go and not take any money, no second tunic, no sandals, not even a walking stick, devote themselves to a life of poverty and obedience. They should wear a, a coarse woolen tunic, um, dress as peasants with a knotted rope around them. Um, and this, by the way, if we think of monks today, this is that's what we think of. That's what we think of Franciscan monks. Yeah. Um, usually they're in the order of you know either Augustinian or Franciscan, and the Franciscan ones you'll notice have have a knotted right. rope around them, right. and uh, the idea is that's all they need. Mm. That's what they're going to live off. They're going to live in simplicity. They are going to preach the gospel to ordinary people, right? And they're going to minister to the least of these. Yep. That's their call. And so he gets one convert. I've read the story. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, um, brother. Bernardo. Um, Bernardo. That's right. I read the story to David earlier, Brother Bernardo. There's a really good <laughs> awesome. book if, you, if you're interested in the St. Frank. Uh, it's called Salvation. It's by Valerie Martin. And I picked it up whenever I was in my 20s and read it like six times because it's just 
absolutely mind blowing, but it tells just story snapshots out of St. Francis' life mm-hmm. that are just absolutely amazing. Like there's this one story where uh, France is, uh, it's, it's later on in life and he is uh now he has this huge, like they have uh Franciscan orders all over yeah. uh, Italy and, and everywhere else. And he gives this guy an order to uh, go and the Pope is going to ride by or not the Pope, but some, some Cardinal is going to ride by with his horses and chariots and all this stuff. And this Francis is supposed to hide. This Franciscan monk is supposed to hide in the weeds and wait for that guy to ride by and then pick up stones and throw him at the Cardinal <laughs> and, and pronounce his uh, judgment of God because he's living a lavish ra- lifestyle and not, not listening to God. <laughs> that, la- that happened. You know what I mean? That's yeah, just yeah. one of those things, you know, another Great story, but the well, okay. So, like, to paraphrase the Bernardo Bernardo story, because so, uh, I love that. Yeah, um, and of course, it was quite a um, involved <laughs> An story. Epic tale. But yeah. but this this guy basically just becomes fascinated with him and invites him to, to his dinner. home. Yeah, and Bernardo's a kind of a pretty wealthy guy. Yeah, he has a cook, got, and yeah, he's got servants and right and all this. And so, uh, of course, Francis uh, takes the offer mm-hmm. and he is hanging out with him and eating and, and it's like as he's talking and watching him and he's like he's not eating much and he's watering down his wine he's watering down his wine and, <laughs> and Bernardo's becomes more fascinated with this and he's and he's, so he's like well you know you want to stay the night. the night you know be my guest and so he does that and and um then he he kind of gets this idea that maybe Francis is faking that he's sleeping right so he starts to fake that he's asleep to see if Francis is going to do something <laughs> right and he ends up basically in this, in this um, almost a, a prayer state, but it's more of a longing, yeah, yearning for God. And what crying I see out is, to God. it said his hands were outstretched with his palms up. And what I see is Francis mimicking Christ on the cross, mm, yes, like this, yes. right up against the wall, up against the wall all yeah. night long, just shouting out, "My God!" Or saying, sobbing, sobbing, and saying, "My God!" Gasping, "My and- God!" My and God! It, it reminds me again. This is so cool. Whenever you go to a place like Haiti, <laughs> right. because you see this type of stuff, right? Like it's very old world, right? Because it's like Christianity is very new, yeah, to them. And so you see that type of thing. Like, and even in some of the services, you'll see people turn toward the wall, sure, and just you know put their hands against the wall and and cry out to God. And so I picture that's the same thing that's oh, going yeah. on here. And this moves Bernardo <laughs> so much, yeah. Like he, <laughs> that, he just basically converts right. Like right there, and he was like, "I've I know my church. I've I've been a, a right. church member, but I've never felt, felt drawn to God. I've never felt this kind of passion for God yeah. that you apparently have." And this is to me is is a big message for us too, by the way, because how many of us are born and raised in the church, mm. and we're we go through the motion. Like we go, yes, I'm a church going guy. I believe in Jesus. I have faith. I mean, we, we run those words out of our mouth like it's just nothing. Sure. And, but how many of us are passionately moved about it? How many of us are yearning and aching in our bones for him? Like, like we can't even hardly stand the fact that he's not physically with us. Right. And there's just this longing for the, the coming of, our bridegroom, you know, yeah, and I don't. It's just like it's, it seems like that yearning is few and far between. Amen. And it, you know, m- most people are just yeah, 
uh, of course I believe in God. You know, it's, it's kind of a lackluster thing. Right. And that's what Bernardo was going through. Right. But he saw in Francis something different. Right. Like, this is not a guy who's going through the motions. Right. This is a guy who is... Genuine. Who is, yes, like, uncontrollably bereft in God's presence. Yeah. Whose number one desire in life is to be like Jesus. Yes. That's what he believes he's called to do, is to exemplify the gospel of Jesus. The famous quote, speak the gospel at all, or preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words, yes. is a Francis quote. You're right. And that's the idea that Francis was going for. And so Bernardo, when he wakes up, he sees that. Yeah. And the first thing Bernardo says is, Tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, I'll do anything you want me to do. Exactly. I want that. Like that's right. what I, that's what I want in my life. That's what my heart's craving. And so he's like, "Show me how to get rid of all this wealth." Right. And so <laughs> they have so a big good. sale and give it away all a yard sale. The yeah. next morning, it's like, "Hey!" And they move all the furniture out into the street. Yeah. And people are coming in, and they're like, <laughs> and they're buying the stuff, and there's no offers being refused. Right. Like. Everything, this, no matter what someone offers, is like, yeah, sure, we'll take that. <laughs> I love that. And then image. the beggars start showing up. Right. And they immediately start giving the money that they're making <laughs> to the beggars. Which pisses off the people who are buying the stuff because they're like, why didn't you just give it to me if you're going to give the money to the beggars? And before you know it, they have this riot on their Yes, hands. people are fighting. <laughs> I, I just see this is like... This is like Walmart on Black, Black Friday. Yeah. That's exactly what this it's is. It's like people start flooding the guy's yeah. house. At one point, they're trying to rip his his own clothes off, yeah. off of him. And, and he, he says, wait, don't rip it off of me. I'll give it to you. <laughs> like, And so they end up, you know, penniless, living in huts, right? And that's that was the idea. So <laughs> the goal was to get all earthly distraction out of the way. That's the reason yes. they took a vow of chastity and took a vow of poverty. It's not that necessarily money is a bad thing. Right. It's not that that chastity. It's not that sex is a bad thing, mm. or relationships are a bad thing. In fact, um, they desperately yearn for these things. Oh yeah. And on another note, Francis didn't always live outside. He had a hut, and at times when he if he was offered something, he would take it. Um, a great story is one time. So uh, going back to the story, he he. There are 11 people who are starting to follow him by this time. Mm -hmm. And they all have a little commune outside of CC. Um, everything's going great. But a, a good example of what I was talking about is, so one time they were trying to fast for 40 days. They, were, they, they fasted a lot and prayed right, a lot. Right. And uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, guys... One of his followers cried out, I'm dying, I'm dying. Like, I'm dying. Like, like I, yeah. it's about to happen. Exactly. And Francis is like, yep, fast is off. Let's stop that. And uh, he, he made everybody eat so that that guy didn't feel like he was weaker than anybody else. Right. And that was just his heart. It wasn't the things were the evil thing. It was the desire that's in us that, that overtakes us is the evil thing. Right. And again, this goes back to... Man, we need to get this mindset. Like more people, and it doesn't. I don't mean that. Hey, everyone should just sell everything they have and be beggars. <laughs> right. What I mean is getting into the into the mindset of service. Yes. And love. Yes. And godliness. Yeah. And that's 
like that's what it's all about. Like it's not about the trappings of the fast right. or the or because the very fact. I mean, I love that that the very fact that one guy in the group mm-hmm. struggling, and he called the whole thing off. Right. Because that sh- that shows you unity. It shows you koinonia. Yeah. It shows you all the things that we are supposed to be. Yeah. And like, if one struggles, we all struggle. Right. If one triumphs, we all triumph. This is the message of Acts two. Yeah. This is the message all throughout the New Testament. Yeah. And this is something that Francis got. Yeah. Like, and you know, I want to go ahead and and, and deal, deal with this just for a minute. So okay. we got a Protestant listeners. We got some Catholic listeners. Sure. And, and Jeremiah and I are definitely Protestants <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so, and so, if you're dealing with, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Protestants may completely dismiss someone like Francis mm. because he was Catholic, mm. but. What we're missing here is, or what the point here is that he wasn't focused on the on on the the trappings of the church or the religion itself. That's he right. was focused on one thing: Jesus Christ, yes. and that is what made the difference. That's right. And so the big thing about this guy is he was so genuine in his belief of the gospel. More than anything else, he wanted every everything in creation. Mm, yes. Everything in creation to know the gospel. His heart <laughs> was so awesome. to tell everybody he knew and every everything. So literally he went around preaching. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he would beg, <laughs> he would get the food, and they would tell the person about Jesus. And right. he was focused on preaching the gospel. Okay, yes. and so that's to the what, birds exactly to, to everything. Er- everything. Yeah, there's a story about uh, there was one day they were riding along, and <laughs> this is probably one of the most famous. This is the reason why if you go out in a garden, you see Saint Frank holding a bird to this day. <laughs> but uh, so there's a story about they were riding along, and, and Frank's like, "Oh, hold up, guys! Uh, there's a patch of birds over there, and I want to tell them the gospel, right?" And so he goes out and he preaches to the birds. So this is the idea that he was a lunatic because he preached to the birds, mm. and other people are like, "No, he wanted people to know the gospel so much so that he preached." And the deal is, he was preaching without a license which is a no-no at this time in the Catholic Church. Right. Because the Pope is in control, and the, the Roman Catholic Church is in control. If, they, if you are preaching something that goes against what they believe or something they stand for, and one right. of the big things was poverty, mm. right? Right. Then you are in danger of being excommunicated, or worse, you are in danger of losing your head. Okay? Well, that was part of the good thing about his... The friar things, yeah, the the Franciscan order, because he he was able to get the Pope. Well, that's the thing. So he in uh, uh, right after uh, he starts, he composes order in around twelve oh nine. They're like, okay, dude, you're gonna have to go. You've got a following. Yeah. You have people yeah. that are listening, and <laughs> your your message is spreading far and wide. You better go get the the right hand of the Pope. Now, here's the deal. Pope Innocent III mm-hmm. did not want to give him a license to preach. <laughs> right. <laughs> Francis didn't want to get a license to pre- preach from Pope Innocent III. In fact, he despised a lot of the papacy. Mm-hmm. There are stories about him railing against popes. But 
the people loved Frank so much that the Pope was kind of it was his forced hand, right? And so they go in there, and Pope Innocent III reluctantly sees him, and after a couple days, he's like, "I guess, I guess I will allow <laughs> you to preach, um, but you know, it's it's not official yet." A couple of years later, it became official because nobody could stop the man. Yeah. And so well, they he, call it Tonzord. Right? Yeah, he was Tonzord. Tonzord is when, uh, you know, those uh, monks that walk around with the uh, shaving. Yeah, with head. the head shaved. Right. <laughs> the top of their head's gone. Yeah. That's, that's what that means. It's official. Uh, that's your official mark. Mm-hmm. So, um, one thing to note- notice about uh, Francisco, and this to me is evidence that he wasn't big in the Catholic Church. He did not want, nor did he ever become a priest in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. He did not absolve sins. He did not do the order- ordinances officially of uh, communion. Right. He did not do. Although he was a big fan of the Eucharist. That's right. Huge fan of the Eucharist. <laughs> uh, he did not do any of those uh, sacraments officially, mm-hmm. but he was a deacon in the church, which allowed him to preach right. and form this order of monks that became known far, far and wide. The Franciscan order uh, became known, the Lesser Brothers um, became famous uh, and actually grew pretty large by this time. Uh, now, this is 1210. I got to understand, he did all this within five to ten years. He was 22 whenever. Is it so extreme. <laughs> is it not? Yeah. I mean, that's... He was dead by 44. Yes. And he, he started this at 22. He was so much like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' ministry, what, it lasts three years, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Francis' ministry lasted 10 yeah, that was it, you know. But in that time, he changed the world with his message of love. Mm. Stories abounded, and so like, you know, tall tales how they how they just yeah rolled. yeah. Like, there's a story about him uh, preaching to a wolf that was bugging a town, right? And uh, the t- <laughs> the uh, the outcome was. He he got the wolf to stop eating the people, and the people started feeding the wolf, and the wolf became a Christian, right? You know, right. <laughs> I'm the Christian wolf. <laughs> nuts, I know. Oh. But the the cool thing is, is but you know, this is something though. I mean, as weird as this sounds, I can understand that. Like, I can yeah. get my head in that. Yeah, I mean, it's just like you know. Especially this past year, I've been like really struggling with a lot of junk, you know, with the whole poverty versus wealth, and yeah. you know, and I, I find myself, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't like to be in my home yeah. anymore. It's it's weird, and I'll go out into the woods. I'll go out into the to uh, there's a, a lake right behind my house, and I'll go hang out there. Yeah. And, Watch the stars, watch the sunset illegally. Yeah. And well, yes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and anyway, so so anyway, when you're out there and it's like you're surrounded by nature and you hear the animals and you hear like the flocks of geese that that are flying, you can't help but think they're worshiping. Yeah, like I'm I'm worshiping with these guys, yeah. like and it and so. There is this yeah. natural order of of God's majesty that that just 
fills your soul. Well, that's what Scripture says. Mm-hmm. All of creation is groaning with anticipation for the coming oh. of the Lord. And the idea is the entire world was made perfect. And Francis was so focused on this idea that the entire world was made fo- perfect and then jacked up whack by sin. Right. And so it needed the gospel. And that's why he loved Jesus so much, mm-hmm. because he restored all things. So Francis saw it as his mission to tell everything that moved, even even the grass, yeah. about Jesus. Well, and look at the way David writes a song. Yeah. He does the and he, same he thing. He got a lot of that out of the song. He yeah. talks about how how everything is praising God. That right. the that the fish in the depths of the sea are are praising God. Right. And I got thinking about that one time. I was like, how do fish praise? <laughs> and then I got to thinking about this is so cool to me because you know you know we talked about Yahweh's name being right. the breath, yeah, and all this. And I kept thinking, Yahweh, right? Is uh, thinking okay? The fish are absorbing. <laughs> God's name from the water with their gills. And then breathing it out. And so it's like the silent praise that's happening because there's no sound that comes mm. out of of that. But that's it's beautiful. like this beautiful uh, way that God built them, and they have to say his name right. just like we do. I don't know. It's just beautiful. I, For me, yeah. and so, so good. So Francis saw this, and his goal was to tell, like I said, every everything that moved. In fact... Um, his his dream was to travel the world and do it, mm-hmm. and so he ended up starting to travel uh, when he wherever he was late thirties, early forties, to the point where he decided that the only thing that would end this terrible, absolutely horrible thing called the Crusades. By now we're in the fifth crusade, <laughs> right? Was if he went to the Sultan himself, <laughs> Al Kamil. Who was a nephew of Saladin, who was the Sultan of Egypt, right? Right. And preached the gospel to the Sultan. Now, gotta understand, Christians and Muslims. No, they just don't do it. There is a holy war that had been lasting for almost a thousand years by this point over a parcel of land called Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. okay? And. You know, there were three different camps that were fighting for it, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and it was a big deal. And Al-Kamil saw anybody who was not a Muslim as an infidel. The Christians saw anybody who wasn't was a Christian, Christian as an infidel. Now, they didn't call him that. Yeah. They called him a heathen. Right. Okay? <laughs> so Christians don't think that they're any better than Muslims. In fact, during the Crusades, it was nasty. Christians had a belief they would put holy water on the tips of their spears, mm-hmm. believing that as the spear went into the man, the holy water would burst out and save the person so he would go to heaven. It was a dark, messed up time. It was. There used to be Christians would see how many Jewish babies they could get on the end of a sword. That's right. I mean, this this was a messed up... Christianity has a dark... yes. Past. Yes. And this is it. Yes. And it was during this time, it's the reason they call it the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was st- such a shining light in the middle of this dark time because he believed that the gospel could con- convert the sultan himself mm-hmm. and change his heart. And so there was a ceasefire for about four weeks. And during the ceasefire, Francis and his company <clears throat> crossed the lines into the Muslim camps, and they seek an office with the king of Egypt, with with the sultan of Egypt, and they get it. 
and he preaches the gospel to the sultan of Egypt. Now, any other Christian at this time mm-hmm. would have taken a sword and tried to kill the man. Yeah. Because he believed that was that was, that was the way God's to go. will. Yeah. That was God's will. The man deserved to die and go to hell. Francis believed that God loved the man and he wanted him to to know Jesus. Mm. And so he spent that time trying to convert him. Now, here's here's something really cool, little known fact. The Franciscan order, because of that, was the only order that the Muslims would allow into the holy city to do worship <laughs> because of Francis's desire to talk Amazing. to this guy. So anyways, uh, he doesn't convert. It doesn't work. God doesn't change that man's heart for some reason. But the idea behind it is so beautiful to me that Francisco wanted everybody to know who Jesus was. Well, isn't that the Great Commission? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exa- going to all the world. <clears throat> that's exactly what Francis was doing. Yeah. Is he was he was hearing what the Christian community was not. Mm. Again, you know, as much as things have changed, things still stay the same in a lot of aspects. Yeah. And we sure we're not you know seeing how many babies we can put on the end of our swords, but it, there's still a lot of hatred and animosity in Christian circles. Right. <clears throat> so at the end of his life, Francisco became a little frustrated with the Franciscan order because it was getting so big it got out of hand. He reorganized it a little bit. There's a story about him coming into a town, seeing the Francisco's building buildings mm-hmm. and freaking out. And he got a ladder and went up on the roof and started ripping off tile by tile and going, You will not build this house. You will you know what I mean? That yeah. was his yeah. because his big thing was Number one, poverty. Number two, chastity. Number three, obedience. That's what we live for, guys. That's it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so be like Jesus. Preach the gospel. Live as a beggar. That's your thing. Um, he got really frustrated, disenfranchised. He went up uh, um, at, at, uh, at one point in, in 1220, he handed over governance of the order because he was so <laughs> frustrated to Peter uh, Catani, whatever, uh, um. So, and then he handed over to Brother Elias, um, who became a big, because five months later, I guess, Brother Peter died. But then he handed over to Brother Elias, and then he goes up on a mountain, and he's doing a 40-day da- fast, uh, the Mountain of Verna. And the story goes, I'm just going to give the story. Yeah. The story goes that... The traditional story. The traditional story is while he's up on the mountain, he receives a visit from a uh, um, an seraph. angel, a seraph, and the seraph imparts on him the stigmata because his number one goal is to be like Jesus, right? Yep. And so he, uh, he gets the stigmata, and then two years later, or a year and a half later, he actually dies of the wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, they get infected, and he dies. Now... Now, we've heard of stigmata, right? but this is the first instance. Yeah, the very first time. That it was recorded. Right. And a lot of people have different theories. My own personal one is that by this time, he was so focused on becoming like Jesus. And you know how passionate he was. Right. We, We read that story with Bernardo. He was a very passionate person. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think... After a 40-day fast, you're probably hallucinating a bit, mm. right? No, that's about as far as you can go. Right, before mm. before you die. And he's on a mountain all alone for 40 days. Yeah. 
And uh, so part of me thinks that this might have been self-inflicted, mm-hmm. um, not intentionally self-inflicted, but self-inflicted through through a, a intense desire to become like Jesus plus hallucinating tripping because he was <laughs> hadn't eaten a drink in right. 40 days and coming down and then uh, he ends up he ends up dying the the crazy thing about this is by the time of his death I guess we might mention that for those who aren't in the know stigmata is the wounds of Christ oh right in yes. the hands feet, feet and side, and, side. Mm-hmm. and so uh oh and I skipped over a whole thing. He uh, he formed the Poor Ladies of Assisi. Mm. Um, he started a, an order for women. Yeah, um, who he wanted built a to be family like of snowmen. Oh, okay. you forgot that one too. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of great stories. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> he he snuck into a, to a pope's funeral and like spit on the corpse. <laughs> Uh, I kid you not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, I'm not joking. Um, there's a lot of things that he did that were very interesting. Uh, this guy was a radical. A hundred percent radical. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so awesome. So like, well, he showed his, oh man, it's nuts. Okay. Anyways. Yeah. The One of my favorite stories is, you know, men, men struggle with chastity, period. Francisco was no different. He was a man, and he was in his prime of life. He was in his 30s whenever this was going on, right? And so uh, he took a vow of chastity, and uh, at this point he had a bunch of people, uh, he had a bunch of monks or a bunch of uh, friars living among him that he had started the order. And uh, one night, one of his, uh, it might have been Brother Elias, I think it was Brother Elias, looked up and saw that his, like he he had a light on, mm. and so he went and checked on him. And as soon as he got up there, it was winter; it was freezing. As soon as he got up there, uh, Francisco burst out of the room, and he was he had his upper half was naked, mm-hmm. and his back was bleeding. He had been beating s- himself beating himself because of his struggle of chastity, right? And his basically his struggle of I want a family and a wife. So the story goes, he fell down and uh, cooled himself in the, snow. in the snow. Yeah, and then looked around and made himself a sand. I uh, made himself a snowman, and then like three others. And then he's talking to himself, and he's like, "That fat one over there, that's your wife." <laughs> and then those two, those are your sons, and these are your servants. And like, so he's talking to his wife and his <laughs> children. It's like this great. Image of a crazy man, <laughs> but crazy for God, absolutely yeah, crazy for God. That's awesome. Um, he uh, he passes away. He's insanely popular by this time, so much so that within months they they give him his uh, sainthood, mm-hmm. which does not happen that quickly. Usually, it's right. years. Um, but everybody knows this man. Because he's gone everywhere and preached the gospel, um, so much so that his funeral—I mean, it is a in Assisi—it is a massive outpouring of people who come and just you know want to touch him mm-hmm. and and know him. And it's crazy how God can take that guy who is a young man and a silk merchant's son who's yeah, living a for player. nothing. That's right, 
and turn him into an inspiration for the entire world. So one would say that that when God talked to him and told him to rebuild my church, I mean, people have been inspired by this man to be followers of Jesus today. My life changed radically when I really read. Actually, I started with a guy by the name of Rich Mullins, and then Rich Mullins was inspired more than anything else by St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And whenever I really started looking at this and seeing this idea of being radically sold out for Christ to the point where I'd give everything away to follow him and be changed by the gospel, really inspired me. And mm. he does that continually. Right. God uses his testimony. Also, he's the greatest, one of the greatest poets of all time. Uh, if you ever heard All Creatures of Our God and King, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. He, he wrote a poem called The Canticle of the Sun. Um Canical brother son, I think, um, and like I said, it's the early one of the earliest forms of Italian poetry we have. So you should go check that out. It's pretty cool. Um, but other than that, I think that's that's pretty much the wow. story and life. Of that's awesome, Saint Frank. It's a good way to kick off our our study of, yeah. of these. Uh, well, we, we were kind of calling it our. A theologian series, right? But like you said, he's really not as much of a theologian as no. he was an inspiration. Yes, but I mean, he qualifies. I mean, he's a theologian in his actions. Yeah. So, <laughs> what? what? Yeah. So yeah, if he needed to, he could use words. That's right. <laughs> All right. So you have some news for us? I do. And now the news. Speaking of wealth and poverty, uh, there was a new study in the last year. 82% of the world's wealth went to 1% of the population. Let me say that again. 82% of the world's wealth went to 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. Oxum uh, International has released the findings in their latest report looking at the distribution of world's wealth. What they found is pretty shocking. Currently, 42 individuals, collect- individuals collectively hold more wealth than 50% of the entire global popu- population. 42 people own more wealth than 50% of the entire global population. Yeah. It's really it's really skewed. Yeah, 82% of all the money generated globally last year ended up in the hands of just 1% of the world's population. Among the reasons cited for wealth being increasingly concentrated in the hands of the richest is tax evasion and the ability to exploit workers as human rights erode in countries around the world. They explain in the report, to end the inequality crisis, we must build an economy for ordinary working people, not the rich and powerful. Last year, we saw the biggest increase in billionaires in history, one more every two days. The huge increase could have ended global extreme poverty seven times over. Dangerous, poorly paid work for many is supporting extreme wealth for the few. Women are in the worst work, and almost all the super-rich are men. Governments must create a more equally equal society by prioritizing ordinary workers and small-scale food producers instead of the rich and powerful. Now, I don't okay, know. so where is this? Where does this? Uh, what's the source? Uh, this is relevant. Okay, um, because you can get the wrong message from this. Yes, you can. Socialism. And, and, well. Sorry. Yeah, but that's but not yeah. where I was going. Okay. Where I was going is that uh, before you start looking down at the super rich and looking down at these 42 people that hold 50% of the world's wealth, 
I wanted you to know that if you're listening to this, you are probably in 10% of That's the richest right. people in the world. That's right. Like this, you are not not a part of this. Yeah. Like the, like <laughs> the world is very um, unequal mm-hmm. in, in their, their poverty level. And so like most of the world's population is making less than or between five and ten thousand dollars per year right. so if you if you make more than that you are in like the top 10 percent percentile right of the richest people in the world right and so yeah it's real easy to read an article like that and go yeah we must change the way that these rich people are are completely ruining everything once again we need to look in the mirror too right because we all fit into that Wow. Largely, the, the most of the listening audience is going to fit into that. Yeah, so that's the truth. Just saying. All right, the Trump administration announced Wednesday that Haitians would be removed from the list of countries eligible for visas that are given for workers in seasonal positions such as agriculture jobs. The Department of Homeland Security said that there were high levels of fraud and abuse, in addition to high rate of overstaying the terms. A previous DHS report said that the Haitians on several different types of non-immigrant visas overstayed their visa at a rare rate of 40%. Out of the catastrophic earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, the country was added to the list of countries eligible for the H-2A and H-2B visas. Less than 100 Haitians immigrated using the visas each year. Less than a hundred of them immigrate, but we're going to shut them down. Uh, yeah, this is killing us. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, this decision comes just days after President Trump allegedly referred to Haiti, in addition to other countries, as a beep hole. Yeah. <laughs> countries were more where more immigrants shouldn't be coming from. It also comes shortly after the administration announced the end of the temporary protected uh, status for Haitians, which affects more than 200,000 Haitians who come to the country following the earthquake. Many parts of the country are still lacking infrastructure as the country is regularly in the patch of hurricanes. Deportation would force people who have been in the country for several years and made lives for themselves to either leave or stay here in fear of deportation. Mm-hmm. People just don't understand what it's like to be in a place like that. They don't. They don't get it. To be in a blank hole. Yeah. <laughs> and I, Honestly, it is in a lot of ways. No, no. no I, I will yeah. I'll admit that. But, I've been there. Yeah. But, I, I, I don't... It's not a paradise, but it's not the people, you know. It, exactly, and that's the problem. And 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 another thing that that people don't realize is you would be no different if you lived there. Yeah, I don't Amen. care. I don't care what you're, how ambitious you think you are, or whatever. People people tend to think things like, well, if they just get a job, yeah, if they just you know apply <laughs> assert themselves, themselves. <laughs> instead of just making themselves beggars of the world. Uh, sorry, it, you. If you're born there, there's no privilege. Right. There's nothing. There's none. There's you no can't. opportunity. There's no. There's, there's no Lego. Nothing. That's right. You you cannot. You eat. can't apply yourself and get a job. The, the way the way I like to explain it is like I don't care. Like if you have the fastest race car in the world, if you put it on an island that's a quarter of a mile around, it's never getting up to speed. Right. There's nothing you can do with it. Right. Like you can have all the ambition in the world, but if you're put into an environment. <laughs> Where you can do nothing with that ambition. It's pointless. It's pointless. Hmm. All right. Socialist government in Bolivia makes evangelism a crime. 
Bolivia's government authorized a new penal code in December, parts of which place severe limitations on religious freedom in the South American nation. Article 88 of the code states that whomever recruits, transports, deprives the freedom or hosts people with the aim of recruiting them to take part in armed conflicts or religious or worship organizations will be penalized 5 to 12 years in imprisonment. According to the translation by Evangelical Focus, a media initiative in the Spanish Evangelical Alliance, changes to the code also permit abortion during the first eight weeks of pregnancy and expand punishment of reckless negligence malpractice in all careers, worrying professionals that uh, from doctors to journalists. Bolivia's population is 77% Catholic and 16% Protestant. Though President Evo Morales, an Andean state's first indigenous president, has been walking the country back from its Catholicism since 2013. Changes were approved several weeks after Bolivia's constitutional court lifted term limits, allowing Morales to run for office indefinitely. Hmm. That's code for dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's so sad. So, uh, you know, go preach the gospel in Bolivia. Yeah, we call that an empire. Yeah, exactly. This is, I love this headline. (laughs) Noah's Ark replica crashes into Dutch Harbor. What? Several ships. (laughs) Noah, watch where you're going. (laughs) What's the matter with you, Noah? Oh, man. (laughs) You crushed my ship, man. Oh my gosh. There's a replica of Noah's Ark at this dock in the Netherlands. It's nearly actual size. Last week, a storm ripped the Ark off of its moorings and sent it crashing around the harbor, colliding with several other vessels and causing significant damage to a nearby ferry and other boats. The Ark is made of wood and built atop 21 steel barges. Its current owner... A uh, Ed Peters has been living on this ship for seven years. What? <laughs> operating it as a floating museum featuring Bible adjacent artifacts and displaying the scenes from the Old and New Testament. At the time of its unmooring, seven people were on board the craft. <laughs> of course, the, there were. Along with one rabbit and a pair <laughs> of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we know the new world is going to be populated by snakes. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the rabbits are out of luck. Uh, oh man! Did you say one rabbit? One rabbit, <laughs> two snakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! That's the best thing ever. The serpent is rising. Oh no! Oh gosh! There were people rescued by the Royal Netherlands Sea Rescue <laughs> Institution, <laughs> but the animals were left behind to weather the storm <laughs> on board the ark. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. Wow. That happened. It is so good. Eight people on board or like one <laughs> one rabbit, two snakes. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, and I got some Pope news. Oh, wait a minute. I was sorry, I was just going to <laughs> I'm completely away from my <laughs> come together. Hallelujah. The Pope is here. Your dream wedding is trash compared to this one. Thursday morning, Pope Francis held an impromptu wedding ceremony above the pa- on board the papal plane to marry two flight attendants. 
Paula Padres Ruiz and Carlos. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Began talking to the pontiff during a group photo shoot. The couple had planned to be married in 2010, but was interrupted by the great Chilean earthquake of that year. The church were Potist and Clodofi were set to hold their ceremony was destroyed. The couple had a civil ceremony, but were never able to have a formal ceremony from a church official until Pope Francis offered to conduct the proceedings himself. On the plane. Francis, he's the Pope. Oh, yes. the blessed you. Francis blessed their rings and had a cardinal on board draft the wedding certificate by hand right there on the airplane. <laughs> The couple signed the certificate along with Francis and a witness, the CEO of the airplane, airline. <laughs> oh, uh, that's nice. I'm a the Pope. I'm the Mary. I'm the Pope. All right. Anyways, that's all I got, dude. That's all you got? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I got... Now, is it real voicemail or are you just playing with my heart? No, it's not real voicemail. Oh. But you know what? To be honest, I didn't even check the voicemail because I just kind of give up on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, hang on. Let me let me check to see. Uh, no, no voicemail. Okay, so what I do have is Facebook message. Woo! <laughs> Facebook message. Okay, so uh, we haven't heard from our boy. Samuel Bobo in a oh, while. Oh, Bobo, how you been, man? And uh, but he's catching up. He's trying to catch up with the show. So he he left me a uh, a note in Facebook, and so I thought I would share it with you uh, because it's it's kind of cool. He says, "Okay," <clears throat> he says, "I must apologize as this will likely be lengthy. I have been fa- uh, fairly far behind on the show and just recently started James three. Throughout my life." I've had moments that I have been reminded of advice I received from my dear friend, Adam Ainsworth. Oh, I should probably shouldn't have said some personal name. <laughs> so, never mind that. My like, dear friend. Is, is uh, his anonymous friend. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, by the way, so this is James chapter three, yes. when we were talking about uh, the tongue. So he says, I can actually recall the events quite vividly. We were in high school cafeteria discussing, quote unquote, cuss words. He and I were opposed to them for different reasons, but mine were of a childish nature, and his would be revealed to be those of a mature, wise nature. He said to me, if you call me a B, well, I wouldn't like that. But if you called me a spoon, then I would just be dumbfounded. (laughs) I'd have to know why you would call me that. And if your explanation was that by spoon, you meant that you hated my entire existence and wished me (laughs) an entire family would (laughs) simply perish. (laughs) Well, then I'd prefer that you just call me a B. (laughs) Because it all comes down to your intention. Yeah. Now, David, the entire time you and Jeremiah have discussed James, I have been reminded over and over of this event and how it has become the truth that I think Adam was trying to tell me. As I have grown, I've come to realize that the more that more than words, but your actions and deeds, your silent thoughts, your prayers, and just general behavior, all you need to have the right intentions or else it's all pointless. Do I pray because I enjoy talking to God? 
or because I want people to think I pray well? Am I a gentleman to those around me for the sake of what people might think, say about me, or because of a servant's heart that I hope blesses God? Since that conversation, that seed has grown beyond the uh, conversation, no, has beyond, grown beyond words, has become, and has become how I analyze my entire lifestyle. I'll never forget that conversation with Adam, and I'm happy about that. You see, you mentioned good advice, and you received from a friend, a friend you later lost. This was the same case with Adam. He went to his heavenly home early in our college years, and it's just as you said, his words matter more to me because I cannot rehear them. Mm. I wanted to send you this story to reinforce what y'all have shared with us from the word. And that mutual agreement you and I have on wise friends that we've lost for now. And lastly, I wanted to say, how dare you, David, make me cry by reminding me of these events. <laughs> LOL. I haven't been too active on the feedback, but I'm still listening, just slower than usual. Hashtag, I'm still around. Yay. Well, we're glad you're still around. Brother. Glad you're still around, uh, Sam. And thanks for the feedback. <clears throat> yes. It was- always is an encouragement. Very good, and it's right in sync with what we were uh, trying to say during that episode, mm-hmm. and about all the James episodes, really, right? Because it's all about the intent, deeds outweighing words. That's right. Because that's a reflection of your heart. That's right. And that's a reflection of your faith. Amen. Which is basically James in a in nutshell. A nutshell. <laughs> this is James in a nutshell. Help! Help! I'm in a nutshell. <laughs> Let me out of this nutshell. Sorry. Stupid. Okay. <laughs> All right, is that all we got? That's that's, it. that's all I got. So, okay, well let's uh, let's do this thing. You got your uh, I do. There. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and stay up to date with all our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and the Secret Fire Podcast. Visit us on our <laughs> website at theonautspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher, and be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a large audience. There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com or call us. Yes. I want to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Call us on the voicemail line, 972 Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. If you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's word with us. All right, Jeremiah, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you, David Getty. All right, God bless. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission. At GCTnetwork.com. Holy ghost power, that's awful.